0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. The call heard around Wall Street. One analyst out with a major warning on Apple saying iPhone 12 sales will miss expectations and the stock is a sell. He joins us momentarily to make his case. Plus, can't raise prices fast enough. That's what one analyst says is going on in the housing market right now. Perhaps you've experienced it. Still, the home building stocks are up 30% this year. Are they still a buy? He says so. We'll debate. And AMC dominates clean energy stumbles and free food to lure back workers. Dom, we have seltzer in the office now pre
3: seltzer, Kelly.
0: <laughs> Very excited. We have
3: a new machine. She's referring to the, the new machine in one of our pantries that gives us a QR code. We can app base it and do hot and cold water and sparkling, by the way. Anyway, I digress. The markets are positive today, and we are not far away from record highs. The Dow industrials are roughly one and a half percent away from record intraday levels. The S and P 500 is down just about one half of one percent from those record intraday levels, and the Nasdaq is just shy of about three percent away from its own record intraday highs. So again. Not far off. The markets are constructive for right now. We'll see if that whole sell in May and go away thing comes to fruition this time around. It's the last trading day in May overall. Now, materials and energy, the two top-performing sectors so far this month, Cyclical names, economically sensitive materials, perhaps some of the infrastructure and kind of global rebound trade there. Energy, that part part of the story as well. And then consumer discretionary, the worst performing sector down 3 percent. But it's not necessarily retail, so to speak, that's doing it. Amazon is part of that story. It had a down month, but also Tesla, the two most heavily weighted stocks by far in that sector. Amazon and Tesla negative on the month. That's dragging the entire sector down. A lot of the other names, retail oriented, are actually in the green so far. And then AMC, what a roller coaster ride it's been so far this year, but even just today. Because as you can see here, we are down 3%. It doesn't seem like a lot, given the fact that this is a roller coaster of a stock, but at the highs today, we were up roughly 38% intraday and at the lows down about 9% just on an intraday basis, so tilting towards the low end of that spectrum right now still though. Kelly, a 12 billion dollar company in AMC Entertainment, it makes it roughly larger market value wise than Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings back over
0: That is an insane intraday swing. By the way, Dom are you hearing anything about why
3: So there's a good amount of activity going on trading wise, but there are a lot of folks now just stepping away. The volumes have at least kind of slowed down a little bit from the surge that we saw initially today. So we'll see whether or not there can be any kind of footing found. But again, the options market active here as well, Kelly. Yeah, this could be a very interesting story. And again, I guess probably at this point more than two times The overall company's shares outstanding have traded in just the last two days. Oh, yeah. So look at the company this way. The whole company has changed hands twice in two days.
0: And it's down 40 percentage points intraday. That's astonishing. Dom, we'll keep watching it. Thank you, sir. Let's turn to Apple now, which has underperformed the market this year and is down 13 percent from its 52-week high. And a bold call. One analyst says it could go even lower. We're talking 90 bucks. He's downgraded the stocks. He's 30 percent downside amid unsustainable iPhone sales. Joining me now is Pierre Faragou. He's the New Street Research managing partner Pierre, it's a pleasure to have you here um the call is is bold but the reasoning is uh, pretty it's pretty calmly reasoned i guess is what i'm trying to say you simply think expectations for the iphone 12 sales are too high
4: that's actually Kelly, um expectations for the I- I- iphone 12s uh, the i mean the one i called the iphone 12s and which doesn't have a name yet and that is going to be announced in uh, in september what we see today is that demand for the iPhone 12 is actually exceptionally strong. So what does that mean? That means the phone introducing 5G, a return of the, 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 the metal frame on the case, uh, has introduced a lot of uh, changes in look and feel and a lot of innovation, and has driven a lot, a lot of interest, and that's bringing forward replacement. So a lot of people who normally would have replaced their phone next year are actually going to replace it this year or are replacing it now. And and, and and this is really where I see the weakness. On the back of this very strong level of replacement today in one year from now, we'll see an air pocket. We'll see far less people in the market buying iPhones. Got That's it. the essence of the call.
0: And so, again, to clarify, you're saying that iPhone 12 demand has been so good that for the next refresh in the fall, there's no way uh, that it can compete or hit the numbers that the street is expecting. So let's play this out to how that turns Apple from 120-something dollar stock into a $90 stock. I mean, it's one thing to sell less than expected, but why would that change Apple's valuation so dramatically?
4: Yeah, it's, it's a very good, um, it's a very good question, Kelly. And so, um, the expectations today are for Apple to produce 230 million phones next year and sell 234 million phones next year, slightly up from what, uh, uh, the market expects for this year. Um, I expect that number to come down, you know, maximum at 200 million dollar, uh, 200 million units, sorry. And, and even potentially uh, a bit less than that. I see the downside risk down as much to one 180 million. So if that happens, what happens? Everybody on Wall Street is going to adjust down their expectations for 2022. And, you know, iPhone shipments being 15%, 20% below where expectations are today means earnings expectations for next year are going to be a good 10% below where they are today. Mm-hmm. And historically, what you see that when that happens to ha- Apple, it has like a temporary but very significant impact on the multiple on the stock. So if your earnings couldn't come down 10%, your stock price can come down 30% because Hmm. your multiple is going to come down. Now, in the longer term, on on, on a three to five year horizon, I do agree with you Kelly, it's no big deal. It's like missing, you know, uh, 30 to 50 million units. In the broader scheme of things with Apple, you know, uh, becoming more and more of a service business, like exactly. more and more of a multi-product business. It, it is a relatively small moving path. But when it's concentrated on one year, it is such a big moving path that like positions have to get adjusted. And we see a downside in the stock, very similar to what happened at the end of 2018. We were in a similar situation. The iPhone X did very well. The XR, the XS did very poorly. And for you know a matter of a few months, this stock came down very significantly by that kind of order of magnitude, 30 to 40 percent.
0: Well, and your call certainly caught our eye because on this show, we've had a number of big investors lately telling us they they are not that bullish on Apple. In fact, you know, Nancy Tangler, we spoke to a, another fund manager who had kind of left it out, even though he typically likes tech names. So you're kind of putting a period on a sentence that we've already been writing uh, to some extent, which is interesting. And Apple obviously is so big and so influential, you could think this would be of relevance to the broader investing public. I guess one question that I have you alluded to is, is on the services piece of this, because this whole argument is basically saying that Apple was a pandemic play and that the reopening does not favor it. What about services? So even if the iPhone unit sales you know, have, a, have a hangover from demand pulled forward, again, kind of coincidentally to the pandemic, they just launched this phone that everybody kind of bought and, and they were at home that, that generated the super cycle. But why wouldn't services ancillary to that Carry the stock through what could be a dip in iPhone sales.
4: Yes, so um, I, I, I think the answer to that is on, 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 on very similar lines. If you think about it on a five-year horizon, like the service opportunity, the expansion of the product portfolio opportunity, like we are talking like very good growth in so many so many products. Uh, yeah, I would even bring in, you know, potentially the car opportunity in the long, ter- in the long run for Apple. All these things should carry the stock through. Um, but on a one-year horizon, you know, what can happen in services? It's a very predictable uh, kind of uh, revenue and financial performance that we can expect. Uh, what Apple is going to do is going to be very close to where expectations are. And so you'll have, like, this air pocket in iPhones, this very significant disappointment, And then uh, uh, along that, on that kind of one-year time horizon, you're not going to have anything to save the stock. Hmm. Now, of course, once the stock is on much lower multiples, once the air pocket starts being behind us and not in front of us, what's going to happen? Fresh money is going to come back into the stock. And in the medium term, I would see, you know, the multiple Uh, readjusting backup over time. But it has to go through this very difficult 2022 year first.
0: Last question, Pierre, just to put this in context, how often have you had a sell on Apple in the past?
4: Uh, I've had a a sell on Apple in the past only twice. One in 2018 on exactly the same setup with the iPhone X. And then once uh, for a very short period of time at a moment where expectations for the iPhone 11 were running very, very hot. And actually, the launch played well, and so I closed that, um, that, um, uh, that rating uh, uh, fairly rapidly. So it, it, it hasn't been, like, my, let's say, main position, of course, on right. that, <laughs> that, uh, that company. Like, it's doing yes. well overall, uh, we can agree.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> no, that's really useful, I think, for everybody uh, to put that into context. Pierre, thank you so much for your time today. Have a great weekend. Pierre of New Street. Let's move along to the broader markets where the Dow and S&P are on track for a fourth straight month of gains. But my next guest says the market overall is entering a risk off mode and it's time to be a little cautious because the smart money is selling. Joining me is Barry James, president of James Investment Research. Barry, good to have you on this Memorial Day weekend, especially. So I don't know if you want to pick up at all on the, the Apple discussion we were just having. If that's if there's Kind of anything analogous from that to your concerns uh, overall for stocks here?
5: Uh, Yeah, there are some uh, similarities. But I'd just like to say, you know, once upon a time, I was out sailing in the Adriatic in a little boat. And the wind was perfect. But I kept getting further and further away from the ship I was supposed to be going toward. And in the end, I had to bail out on an island. And I found out later that I wasn't this terrible sailor, that it was the current Mm. was moving faster than the wind would move me. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly where we are today. The wind, uh, you know, behind us right now is, of course, you know, a strong economy, great earnings, Fed, you know, support and, uh, and, you know, obviously fiscal stimulus. But the current, which is why I'm a little bit cautious right now, is made up of a couple things. We do have high valuations, which makes the the market a little more vulnerable. And then we also see uh, the smart money is selling. And when I say that, look at the companies themselves. There is record issuance of shares, on a, on a, you know, compared to the size of our economy. Uh, that's not necessarily positive. You see insiders selling pretty aggressively. And then something that's been a great support, uh, the masses have been buying stocks. They're getting more and more cautious right now, which could, uh, you know, uh, lead to some, some sort of a pullback. And just to kind of tie all this up in a ribbon, um, we're seeing that already in the growth area. Mm-hmm. And which Apple kind of fits into that in the month of May, both large and small growth down, both large and small value up. And uh, that's just part of the transition, I think, that's taking place. It's uh, a great within the market. analogy.
0: And, and I know you're a classic stock picker as you kind of look through the, the investment landscape, Mass Tech, Regents Financial, LGI Homes, you know, all of those yeah. uh, with industrials, financials, you know, housing, those are. In that kind of value part of the market, right? I mean, do you have to have a point of view on inflation, you know, to to be thinking through the level of bond yields and, and, you know, real income and all of the stuff that people are puzzling over right now? I mean, are these stocks that can perform well no matter what happens in terms of wages and price hikes in the near term horizon and the Fed's response to all of that?
5: Well, <laughs> nobody really knows, but we think so. Especially a, a company like Regions Financial, the the wider the spread between short and long-term interest rates, you know, they make the make the money on the difference. So that's good for them, and they're very well uh, organized, uh, you know, to handle the, these major changes in interest rates and. To respond to the strong economy Mastech in is obviously in the infrastructure area and uh, this is perfect for them i don't really think it matters and lgi homes i know there's some you know rub about uh, the housing industry but they know how to pass along higher costs their customer is a first time homeowner and they're very very you know uh, not sensitive to to the price hike so as long as they can keep that up uh, i think that these three in that cyclical area will work well
0: Tell me, Barry, about your concerns with the market overall, because you mentioned kind of valuation and and some, uh, you know, the smart money selling being the companies themselves. But is this the kind of environment that could persist for the summer, you know, kind of a near-term thing that most people can ignore, but, you know, people who are kind of in and out of this for a few weeks need to pay attention to, or is this a bigger reset that that you think might be coming?
5: I I think it's just part of the overall reset uh, from the growth area to more of a value area. Um, and with the economy, you know, on, on a positive uh, turn, so that this is just to be kind of a natural, you know, the currents will change and those will go away and those winds will come back uh, into the market. So I don't see this as a a permanent thing right now, but I would say... I would not be chasing the market at this juncture. And if I had a little room to take some things off of the table, you know, things that had run really fast, uh, maybe too fast, as it were, uh, this would be a good time to do that.
0: From the Adriatic Sea to the housing market and Apple (laughs) all wrapped up in one. Barry, a pleasure to have you as always. Thank you, sir. Great to be with Barry you. Barry James with James Investment Research. Coming up, forget airlines or restaurants or even cruise stocks. How about buying a REIT as a reopening play? We'll speak with the CEO of this mystery stock that's up 19% since January and could see a summer surge as Americans hit the road. Plus, we just spoke about it, but builders can't raise prices fast enough. That's what one analyst is saying about the housing market right now. Can it power the homebuilder stocks? Look at this performance. To new highs? We'll ask after this.
5: This is The Exchange
6: on CNBC.
7: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration Welcome back. My next
0: guest says that home builders literally can't raise prices fast enough. He argues that peak profit margins are still to come for the builders, and any recent dip in their stock prices are buying opportunities. He just raised his price targets on KB and Lennar, while both are down about 4% in a month. They're still up 30% this year, along with the home builder ETF, the XHB. And joining me now is Stephen Kim of Evercore ISI. Stephen, it's great to have you back. You've been consistently bullish on the space. But many are starting to ask if we're at a tipping point where homes are simply no longer affordable at these prices. Why do you feel differently?
2: Thanks, Kelly. And you're right. We have I would actually say we've consistently gotten people concerned that things are too good. You know, this is a cyclical industry and investors aren't stupid. And they when they see that things are really good, they immediately start thinking, is this peak margins? Is this as good as it gets and all that sort of thing? Uh, And our call is that uh, that it is way too early. Um, If you look at what's going on right now, you can actually see that the builders have literally reached the point where they can't raise prices fast enough. So they are actually moving to an auction type format. (laughs) This is something that we have almost never seen in the history of the modern home building industry. And we think that it's going to drive actually, believe it or not, another leg up in the gross margins and there's a lot of historical data actually to suggest that but for some reason the street just continues to to dig in their heels and be unwilling to model the kind of gross margin expansion which we think is going to come
7: well
0: that might be in part because the numbers are, are so extraordinary you know it, I'm thinking through a little bit of the revolution and what's happened with the cloud, for instance, um, where you have companies who are saying we leapt from like a 2015 operating environment to a 2030 operating environment overnight in terms of the shift to e-commerce. It feels like we've just had a decade worth of home price growth in a year. I mean, the FHFA index was up 14 percent in March. It, It continues to accelerate. And that's that's broad. That's not just the urban areas. Right. Like so when you see price growth that rapid, you just think to yourself. How much longer can this keep going? Is it going to keep increasing from 14 percent annual growth?
2: Well, uh, I will tell you that if you look at the most recent data uh, covering the existing home market, uh, home prices are actually up about 26 percent year over year at this point. The, uh, the, the comparisons get a little easier, actually, over the next few weeks. So, yeah, I think you should be bracing yourself to see home prices up in the high 20s. And that is well above what we have ever seen in the past. There's no question that this is not a sustainable level. However, I think the critical disagreement between myself and a lot of our peers is that there is an overfocus, we believe, on demand. And trying to predict, can demand get any better? Can demand get any stronger? And it's really, frankly, missing the point. What is truly remarkable about the current environment is the lack of supply, not just in the resale market, but also constraints on home production. And in fact, if you look at a trailing 15-year series of home housing starts, very easy. Anybody can pull it down. Just take a 15-year average and go back to the the dawn of modern home building in 1945, and you will. that it was a very steady rate, somewhere around a million five. And then all of a sudden, this cycle over the last 15 years, it has plummeted. We have underbuilt this industry for over a decade. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen overnight. It's not going to be solved overnight. On the resale market, which is six times bigger than the, than the new market, uh, people often say, well, what if people all of a sudden decide to list their home? Well, if they do that, they got to buy a home at the same time. Exactly. That's not going to change the inventory situation. So the resale inventory cannot move quickly, uh, move higher quickly. And on the home building side, we actually have uh, more than a decade of underbuilding and it's not going to be solved in the matter of a year or two.
0: This is crazy. I mean, because what you're saying is great. And as you say, you have outperformed ratings on all of the builders. You raise your target prices on KB, Lenar and toll. But what you're saying for society has implications I'm going to need to think through maybe over the long weekend. Stephen, thank you again, sir. Really, really appreciate it. Stephen Kim with Evercore ISI. Coming up, Nicola and Plug Power are both getting initiated with a buy today and both for the same reason. We'll tell you what it is, why now, and how much upside one firm sees ahead. Don't forget, you can watch us anytime, anywhere you are. Now that everyone's back on the road again, you can just use the CNBC
7: app. We're back in a minute. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm still
0: thinking about what we just talked about in the housing market. If prices are going to keep going up from 13% to 20% a year, What is everybody going to do? All right, let's turn back to the broader markets where the Dow is up 105 points. That's about a third of a percent right now. We're about 60 points off the all-time highs. The Nasdaq is the outperformer. It's up half a percent. And let's talk about some of the movers this hour. Shares of HP are lower. They beat on the top and bottom line but warned of possible headwinds from the chip shortage in their guidance. The shares are down nearly 8 percent. Ulta is meanwhile sitting pretty once again today. It's up more than 5 percent. One of the best performers in the Dow. Uh, Ulta is now a $346 stock. It's having a its best day so far this year. And Boeing is lower on news. The company is delaying deliveries of the 787 Dreamliner amid a request from the FAA for more information on previously identified quality control issues. Boeing has clawed back to 247, but it's down about 1% today. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel.
8: Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Senate has delayed considering legislation that aims to make the U.S. more competitive with China and other countries. The $250 billion bill would boost investments in research and development. That includes $50 billion to address the global chip shortage. The bill will return to the Senate floor on June 8th, so there is more time to consider GOP amendments. In Florida, a 14-year-old is facing first-degree murder charges and the death of a 13-year-old classmate. Aiden Fucci is being tried as an adult and faces a possible life sentence for stabbing Tristan Bailey earlier this month. Fucci is being held without bail. And get ready for heavy traffic and crowded airports over the holiday weekend. The head of Homeland Security warning air travelers to expect long lines on the way to their flights. And for the first time since the pandemic began, the U.S. could see more than two million air passengers in a single day. And the crowds won't just be on the roads and in the skies. On the news, see how the country is trying to get back to normal for Memorial Day and what safety measures you should still consider summer is upon us. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you so much. After this break, 3.6 million jobs have still not returned to the
0: hotel industry since the pandemic began. And one of our next guests says that Amazon is partially to blame for that. The CEO of Pebblebrook Hotel Trust joins us live. The stock is up almost 60 percent in the past year. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. We have breaking news on President Biden's budget. It was just released. It's hitting the news wires. Eamon Javers has the numbers for us. Eamon.
9: Kelly, the top line numbers on this $6 trillion budget request were out this morning, but we're now getting our first look inside the numbers. And take a look at some of what President Biden is requesting here as you go agency by agency in this federal budget request. Uh, on defense in 2021, the request was $703.7 billion. In 2022, that pops uh, to $715 billion. So it's an increase there for defense, but not nearly as much of an increase as you see for education and for health care. In education, you see 70, billion in 21, 102.8 billion, a really significant increase there uh, for the education budget and for health and human services, 108.4 billion back in 2021. 2022 request, though, 133.7. So you can see sort of the, the values behind this document that President Biden is laying out, what he believes the increases should go to. Now take a look at some of the economic assumptions that we're learning about inside this budget. This is how the Biden administration is assuming the the economy will go in order to generate these numbers. Real GDP percent change year over year in 2021, 5.2 percent. In 2022, 4.3 percent. Unemployment, 5.5% in 2021, uh, going out to 4.1% in 2022. So a significant decline there in the unemployment rate. And then the 10-year, they're saying 1.2% in 2021, and the assumption is 2.8% in 2030. But Kelly, as we know, 2030 is a long time from now, so always tricky to predict. But nonetheless, these documents require you to do exactly that. Right,
0: even though we've just lived through a completely unpredictable pandemic.
9: You know, that right, just right. go
0: to show how difficult these can be. But uh, absolutely, uh, we have to make some plans and see if we can stick to them. Eamon, stay right there if you would. Let's talk a little bit more about the debt and deficits this budget would entail and how it would deal like, with matters like the expiring 2017 tax cuts. Joining me now is James Pethakukis. He's economic policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute and a CNBC contributor. Jimmy, it's good to see you again. What, what are Thank the headlines you. for you here? Well,
10: I, what, I, what I find really interesting is those economic forecasts. Yeah, we knew there was going to be a uh, a lot more debt, uh, record levels of debt, a lot more spending, uh but what do they forecast for interest rates cuz we're going to be doing a lot of stuff. We're going to be spending a lot. Yet they still think inflation is going to be totally under control, interest rates rising only gradually. So I think that's that's pretty interesting. They're not assuming any kind of big interest rate shock. all everything else is kind of an all else equal. They think all else is going to stay equal. And also those GDP numbers Amy was talking about, uh, kind of a blip here, this year and next. But after that, they expect much more moderate growth. And I hope we can do better than that.
0: So let's talk about the interest rates uh, and the inflation piece of this. Jimmy, like, give us some examples. If all of a sudden the 10-year goes from 1.5 to 2 or 2.5 or even 3%, like some are saying, what does that mean for the, the budget's goals?
10: Listen, if if rates go up and uh I'm and I'm guessing cuz I am i am guessing because i do not see those numbers that their long-term interest rate forecast is probably not a lot different than CBO. Uh if long-term rates are a couple points higher, then we're talking, you know, I don't know, 8, 9, 10 trillion dollars more in debt. So that's a lot. But the, what the administration is focusing on is keeping those interest rate uh uh payments under control. Uh Less focus on debt to GDP. I mean, that's the number most people are familiar with, to the extent they're familiar with any of these numbers. And that's going to be a record. But as long as those payments are under control, then they feel like this is a sustainable budget. And that's a, that's kind of a change of a change of course from previous administrations.
0: Eamon, You know, we know this is basically a priority list. Some call it a wish list, but it, it, you know, Congress has to get behind it. Um, what is realistic? You know, what what of this are we likely to actually see come to pass? And, and I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here that's really controversial, especially some of the capital gain stuff at death. So, with, you know, how much of this spending do you think is really likely to be given the go ahead?
9: Well, I think you have to ask Senator Manchin that, right? I mean, he's the deal maker in the Senate. We'll see what the administration can get through that sort of needle. They have the, the slimmest of margins possible in the Senate, a slim margin of control in the House. So, uh, typically, a, you know, a, a majority with a Democrat in the White House and Democrats in control on Capitol Hill can do a lot. But in this case, they can do less than normal. Uh, And, you know, there's always some give and take here and no president gets exactly what he wants. And that's why I think you saw Jimmy laying this out as a values document. This is sort of Biden saying, look, if I could wave a magic wand and and do something, this is what I would do. But obviously, he doesn't have a magic wand and the Senate's in the way. And, And so that's going to be a political battle. Uh, throughout the rest of the year and we'll see where they land. But the the idea that you'd get exactly this that, that ain't happening. Right. The question is how much can they push through? Yeah, no
0: Goldman even said yesterday the fact they're releasing at one thirty and on a Friday into a Moral Day weekend suggests <laughs> <laughs> trying to bury it to some degree. Uh, but anyway, we'll see.
9: Yeah, we have a not long- burying it here, though. We're paying attention. Ne- never, never. We're <laughs> focusing hard.
0: That's right. James the the Kukus, Amy <laughs> Jabbers, thank That's you right. both for uh, joining me this hour. Coming up, the first real test for the summer box office. The clean energy trade is running out of juice. Hydrogen hits the road and free food to woo workers. It's all in rapid fire. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Let's catch you up back. Let's catch you up, she said, on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for rapid fire. And joining me to break down the headlines are Julia Borston, Dominic Chu, I think, uh, and CNBC <laughs> CNBC's own Christina Evelis. welcome one and all. Let's start with what's going on this weekend in the box office, the first major test for the reopening of theaters. Analysts have high expectations for the debut of Paramount's Quiet Place 2 and Disney's Cruella, especially given that more than 70% of theaters are open again. And by the way, Julia, the meme stock, AMC, it was up almost 40% today and as much as 200% this week. Now it has reversed. Uh, No, it did turn negative. Now it's clawed its way back up to a 2% gain.
1: Yes, Kelly, this weekend's gonna be very interesting. I'm gonna set the meme stock stuff aside, but I would say this weekend's gonna be very interesting because the two big movies that are being debuted in theaters. Are, both have unusual distribution strategies. So before the pandemic, there was always a 90-day window between when films were available in theaters and then when you could watch them at home. But Quiet Place 2 is going to be available in theaters exclusively for 45 days before people can then stream it on Paramount+. And Cruella is going to be available for Disney Plus subscribers for an additional $30 fee. So the question is, does the fact that people aren't used to going to movie theaters keep people home, or does the fact that there's going to be more options for how to watch these films sort of depress the, the box office? But Kelly, it really seems like there is excitement about getting out there again. Quiet Place 2 grossed $5 million in its Thursday night screening.
0: Yeah, I think, Christina, the unofficial kind of theme of this rapid fire, and maybe many to come, is going to be it's booming out there because... If you try to, I mean, the traffic, like, my downtown looked like a block party the last couple nights. It was people everywhere. It was insane. And I just think about the theaters and what Julie is saying, and it does feel like there's a lot of pent-up demand.
6: There is a lot of pent-up demand, and we can see that just in New York City and your own anywhere you live across the country. However, Mm -hmm. does that translate into people going into movie theaters? We just talked about the the time frame going from 90 days to 45 days. How are a lot of these companies like AMC going to be sustainable in the near future when they are not going to be having people come as often or when they're going to have to compete with all the streaming services? Yes, you mentioned AMC, Reddit crowd, maybe institutional investors as well thrown into that mix that have pushed the stock up. Trading volume is three times the 30 day average. So a lot of people are talking about it. But AMC in particular, the debt levels that they're carrying on their balance sheet is just incredible. Some of their senior debt, you're seeing coupon rates well above 10 percent. So how is this going to be sustainable going into the future when movies aren't being even shown for as much time?
0: Absolutely. And it makes you think, Tim, of some of the airline stocks, too, that are carrying these huge debt loads. Even, you know, what happens when that initial excitement kind of turns to the long term sustainability of it? What would you do with the stocks here?
11: Uh, like AMC is is no touch, um, and you know the move we've had here is a function of short interest. You know the, the Reddit rebellion, and I, and I know sometimes we're not allowed to say that it's lunacy, but it's lunacy. Um, the, the point was really very well made. Four hundred million dollars of interest expense for AMC um, on top of you know two to three hundred million in capex just to stay kind of relevant with their current offering at a time when the structural headwinds are what they are. If I were they, I would be raising every single penny I yes. could right here. That, that's what your CFO should be doing. Um, that last raise was around nine dollars, which at the time looked like actually genius. It would be even smarter here. So again, uh, you know, this is a company that's going to, you know, they made 700 million in EBITDA in you know, 2019 and in a declining dynamic that's only getting worse. Um, trades at about 45 times adjusted EBITDA. I, you know, again, I don't, I don't understand any of this. I realize, you know, I want to go to the movies. You want to go to the movies. I will go to the movies again. Um, but their game is totally different than it used to be.
0: I mean, I think watching the stock is more entertaining than uh, perhaps some of the movies, but I think it's a $27 <laughs> equity now. So like you said, and that's a point Barry James made off the top. It's one of the reasons he's cautious on the whole market. He says that there's just been a massive issuance in stock and maybe AMC will be next. So, Tim, uh, watch out. Uh, the Reddit Army's coming after you.
7: Yep.
0: <laughs> Up next, green yep. energy yep. stocks. Yep. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm sure it's not a new thing. Uh, green energy stocks have spent most of 2021 in the red. That's despite President Biden's clean energy push and all of this interest in electric vehicles. And Vesco's Clean Energy and Solar ETFs, Caesar Tickers, PBW and TAN, they're both down about twenty percent this year. Their ETF chief for the Americas recently told CNBC investors shouldn't expect gains overnight, saying well, when you think about the transformation to clean energy, we think about it over decades, not days. But Christina, what do you think is really going on here?
11: Well,
6: this isn't like you said, it's not an overnight sensation. This is something that's going to take a while to change. It's not just the United States. You have uh, Boris Johnson in the United, uh, United Kingdom that is mentioning this 10 point cl- plan. You have the EU with their green deal. You have even China wanting to clean up production. So all of this is not going to happen overnight. But the fact that everybody is making a statement, you have a lot of investors that put their capital into these ETFs, a lot of these individual companies, many of which they're not even turning a profit. So that's when you have to look at, is their current market cap, the price that you're seeing on all of these exchanges, are they very disconnected from the underlying values of a lot of these companies? Mm -hmm. And that's where we can raise the question of whether these are in a bubble. Uh, You just mentioned a bunch that we're showing on the screen here. I also have a graph that I was looking at that maybe we can bring up just in terms of how often now funds and institutional investors are talking about ESG. And just this bar chart just visually shows how much it's just gone up just within the last year uh, from 2020 to 2021. So the the conclusion, I guess you can say, is, yeah, going green is here to stay. But. Is it frothy? Do we need to see it cool down a little bit? Because a lot of these companies aren't even making money yet. Right, and it's unpredictable to try to tie that back to
0: stock performance. You think this would be among the best performers? Actually, on that note, let's talk about what's going on with hydrogen. One Wall Street firm, is, of BTIG, is initiating two players' Plug Power power and Nikola. Of course, we talk a ton about both of these names, but this all comes under this hydrogen umbrella. BTIG is bullish on it because of momentum from the Paris Climate Agreement, because of the rise of ESG investing, and because of green investments from banks. Neither stock is moving too much today, Tim, but they are up big this week. So to the point Christina was just making, how do you sensibly play this humongous ESG theme when it's unreliable on a stock-by-stock basis?
11: Yeah. And, and investors in plug have, have seen a stock, uh, again, be on a wild roller coaster ride, essentially a 50 percent pullback. Um, and and the story in, in hydrogen is, you know, you're slowly starting to see uh, both the infrastructure and the adoption and, and the, you know, the orientation uh, for consumers to actually begin to, you know, get. To this transition. And and this is so, in other words, this is even earlier than EV. Yeah, I mean, hydrogen and EV are the best thing that ever happened to dirty energy. I mean, you know, again, Hmm. people are going to hate me for this. um, But that's that, you know, that's why energy and the, the, you know, the oil services and some of the other spaces have been outperforming is because Biden's EV policy has been great for dirty energy.
0: And to that point, Tim, just to kind of like highlight this a little bit. I mean, there's people who are saying this entire movement, this entire divest movement is a, bullish for the oil price, AKA going to push it up. It's what we're all using in the meantime. I mean, that's a problem. A lot of the stuff yep. that we drive and consume and pay our energy bills with is that old, dirtier energy that's going to be more expensive possibly than ever as a result of all this.
11: Yeah, and, and, and I think, as, especially as we are kicking off this weekend where we're all going to start maybe driving somewhere and, and, and peak driving season's just getting going. Um, and people are going to look at energy credits differently. And remember, you know, Tesla, I don't want to use this as a Tesla you know, segue, um, other than to say, you know, Ford and GM and the big OEMs have essentially been selling energy credits uh, I mean have been buying energy credits excuse me and this mm-hmm. has been a big windfall for Tesla so these are some of the other dynamics to watch I think you know what worked yesterday for some of these companies is different and as Ford we've heard all week is moving into an EV strategy yeah. I think they're 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 going to benefit from those credits
0: You want to go bearish on Bitcoin too just to kind of you know wrap Wrap up the whole thing.
11: (laughs) Sure. Why not? not? Uh, We're going into a long weekend. I mean, isn't this the time when when actually the the price action around Bitcoin's been uh, collapsing? I I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, again, uh, the VIX is sub 15 or getting around 16 ish. Um, So way, way down over the last Mm -hmm. two weeks off of the highs. And yet crypto is still struggling. Interesting.
0: Yeah, making the point. All right. Let's talk finally before we go. As we look at these reopening dynamics across the economy, one of the big ba- some of the big banks now are trying to lure people back with meals. Our own Hugh Sun is reporting that Goldman, Credit Suisse and Bank of America are among a long list of companies that are now Paying for or providing free food is a way to get people back into the office. So for some, this started early on in the pandemic. I mean, we at CNBC had a little bit of this as kind of a, hey, you know, we appreciate you being in the office and so forth. Some of it is because restaurants are closed or when on lockdown, there wasn't another choice. Now it's a motivation tool to bring back workers. A recent poll found that 64 percent of remote workers aren't comfortable returning to the office for at least another month, Julia, or
1: more. Well, look, Kelly, I have to say, what's old is new again. This has been a technique of the Silicon Valley tech giants for years. I remember a decade ago being in the big Silicon Valley tech giants offices like Twitter, Facebook, Google. They all had the most remarkable spreads of food. This is a strategy not only to lure over talent, but also to keep people in their offices and working. You can save a lot of time if you don't have to leave the office and go get food. Also, of course, in Silicon Valley, there are a lot of office parks, so there aren't that many options around. But I think this is a really classic strategy, not only to make your workers feel appreciated and taken care of, but also prevent them from maybe getting a little too distracted during their lunch break. Yeah, God forbid, you
6: know. Christina, I'll give you the last word on this. I think it's unfortunate that you have so many of the smaller players, the mom-and-pop shops, that can't get these workers back. Yeah, we're talking about these big banks. We're talking about big tech that can afford to offer subsidized meals, free meals. But what about all of the smaller players out there that are still struggling, can't find workers? And I think that's something that we really need to focus on.
0: Yeah, it's going to widen the gap between those who can and those who can't. It's a great point. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week. Again, Christina Partzenevolis, Tim Seymour, and Julia Borston. And for more on the firms using free food to get workers back to the office, visit CNBC.com/slash pro. Still ahead, summer leisure travel is back, and publicly traded hotel rates are benefiting from high demand. Pebble Brook Hotel Trust, Diamond Rock Hospitality, Xenia Hotels and Resorts, all more than doubling from their 52-week lows. The CEO of Pebble Brook, which is one of them, joins us on the other side of this break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Hotels are seeing demand surge into Memorial Day weekend. If it's any indication for the rest of the season, hospitality may be headed for a hot summer. But with the worker shortage, the industry faces delays and longer wait times for travelers, among other issues. Sima Modi is here now with the state of the travel rebound. Sima.
12: Hey, Kelly, we're heading into that busy summer travel season as the hospitality industry faces a pandemic-induced labor shortage. U.S. hotels typically employ 8.3 million workers, but only 713,000 have been added back since the end of January. Owners have responded by adding incentives, hosting job fairs, and offering more flexible hours. Is that enough, and how could that impact the customer experience? Let's ask John Board, CEO of Pebblebrook, a hotel real estate investment trust, which owns over 50 hotels across the nation. John, it's good to see you today. You're actually anticipating this three-day weekend to be the strongest for the hotel industry since the pandemic. I guess the question is, with the staffing shortage, what should customers who are checking into a hotel expect? Will there be delays? Is going to be harder to get their room cleaned, uh, housekeeping, in-room dining? What should they expect?
13: Well, Seema, nice to be with you today. At least some of us are working on the uh, Friday afternoon before this holiday weekend. Um, We are expecting uh, at least a record weekend compared to anything we've achieved so far during the pandemic, and that's very encouraging. Obviously, uh, we think we'll hit uh, occupancy levels that are similar to 2019 as an industry uh, and at rates that are uh, about 10 to 15% lower than 2019. For Pebblebrook, we think we'll hit uh, occupancies in the low 60s, which is still about a third off of uh, our 2019 numbers. But our ADRs are flat, driven by uh, our premiums in our portfolio of hotels. I think when it it comes to the customers, it's going to vary by market in hotels uh, as it relates to service. Um, We certainly would ask customers to be patient, no different than probably what everyone's experiencing in restaurants these days. Uh, it's hard to find cooks and, and enough servers to deal with the surge uh, and the recovery of demand in the industry. Um, but we're working really hard at that. Our, our folks uh, at, at, are accepting lots of overtime. Our managers are working uh, shifts. Uh, and our objective is to, to deliver the same kinds of services that we did back in 2019, pre-pandemic.
0: And among, John, it's Kelly here, but Seema's also made a great point that among other uh, competitors for these workers, Amazon's now a big one. Is that right?
13: Yeah, there there are a number of new competitors and not not surprising, you know, something like 80 uh, to 90 percent of our uh, associates in our industry were laid off during the pandemic. You know, we were one of the first industries to be hit. We'll be probably one of the last to recover completely. And so about 20 to 25 percent of the employees in the industry uh, based upon our surveys have moved on to other jobs outside of our industry. So we're, uh, we're uh, searching for those from uh, other places than we normally do. We're looking at universities and community colleges. We think a lot of this uh, labor shortage is temporary uh, right. over the next few months. So we're, we're trying to bring on summer uh, workers. We're pushing to get our, our uh, H2Bs uh, through the immigration system. Uh, So that we can pick up those seasonal workers that we historically have in the past. And uh, there are places, Kelly, where we are uh, providing uh, hiring bonuses of maybe five hundred dollars to uh, new employees as as well as bonuses uh, to employees for referrals that turn into new hires.
12: Hey, here's a question. You have a couple a couple hotels down in Florida. I'm wondering whether Governor DeSantis's uh, pushback on businesses mandating the vaccine is resulting in some of those uh, trade shows, conferences that were going to host their big events at your hotel saying, you know what, we're not going to Florida. We're going to go to a different state.
13: Yeah, uh, Seema, we don't we don't really have large groups at any of our properties in, in Florida. But what I would say is most of the states and cities where major conventions are. Uh, have occurred in the past and hopefully occur again uh, in the future as businesses return. Uh, most of them are requiring for large gatherings, they're requiring either proof of vaccination or uh, a negative COVID test. So I, I think it's going to be fairly typical across the country.
12: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. All right, John, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it.
13: All right. Thanks for having me.
12: John Bortz and Sima Modi, thank you
0: for bringing that to us on a Friday afternoon, as you said. That does it for The Exchange You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
7: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.